am your class is in session. As always, I am your ever diligent Professor Hamby here ensuring your educational future, joined by my TA ensuring I'm not sure what you're insuring. What are you insuring? My future pay. Your future pay. It's all about the money for your generation, isn't it? Quietly quitting, you know, demanding basic human rights, and that employers actually treat you in a civil manner. I mean, back in my day... You were just abused in silence. Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> Okay, speaking of abuse, it's Black History Month. Woo! <laughs> Most awkward transition ever. But oddly appropriate. Oddly appropriate. So, February's Black History Month, it is a time that I think it is appropriate not only to look at African American writing, but writing of the entire African diaspora. Mm-hmm. However, this time we are going to be kind of looking in at an American viewpoint, and we're going to talk about the X-Men a little bit. Now, we're going to start talking about the X-Men just to give a little bit of historical context for those who have not read the X-Men, and then we are going to go into an early graphic novel, God Loves, Man Kills, by Chris Claremont, featuring the X-Men. Now, what to say about the X-Men? Well, they were invented by Stan Lee and... Jack Kirby? Jack Kirby, you got it. Uh, He didn't do all the art in the original issues. He probably did the penciling and someone else did the colors. The X-Men debuted in, I want to say, 1963. So it was one of the early Marvel titles. Now, people often assume that the X-Men had to be hugely successful from the very beginning. And it wasn't. In fact, X-Men was one of Marvel's least popular titles. Interesting. I assume they blew up the same way people like Spider-Man and um, Superman did. Nope. They were not an immediate success. But they grew over time, especially in the 70s. And by the 1980s, the X-Men was one of the hottest titles in all of comicdom. I mean, no doubt about it. And... It's not surprising. The essential themes of the X-Men are the underdog, underground heroes, which are perennially popular themes. Mm -hmm. And the twist is they're mutants. This explains how they got their superpowers. Mm -hmm. Now, in contrast, look at other things that were being published. How did Superman get his superpowers? He was an alien. He was an alien and he was born with them. And then you had Batman who trained himself and... Green Lantern was a space cop, and those were all at DC. But you come over to Marvel, and look at the Avengers. You have a a Norse god. You have a military officer. You have an inventor, an industrialist. Mm -hmm. So, again, these very authoritarian types. Now, Marvel started changing that up some with characters like the Hulk and Spider-Man who were the creations of scientific accidents of the modern age. Mm -hmm. And also Stan Lee creations. Mm -hmm. The hounds are in a mood today. Freshmen have been avoiding the area now. Yeah, well, you know, that's how they become sophomores, by learning to do that. Yeah. So, the X-Men actually were in the same vein of Spider-Man and the Hulk. They were the creations of radiation. Mm -hmm. 
whereas Spider-Man is bit by a radioactive bug, and Bruce Banner is hit by these experimental gamma bombs. The X-Men, it is implied, are the result of mutations in human DNA from, you know, the various energies of the atomic age. Mm -hmm. Now, this is kind of pulled back mm -hmm. in some later series. By the time you get to the introduction of characters like Mr. Sinister and Apocalypse, they talk about the first mutants coming around in ancient Egypt. Mm -hmm. But the theme is pretty straightforward, that we have this new race of humanity evolving parallel normal hom homo sapiens, and these so-called homo superior will probably eventually take humanity's place the way homo sapiens took from, say, homo habilis, homo erectus, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And by today's standards, it looks pretty cheesy. But here we have X-Men number one. And the idea of these mutations would have been very natural to people in the 1960s. In the late 40s through 50s and some of the 60s, you know, the radiation monster movie was a staple of the American B-movie. Mm -hmm. Just like Godzilla came into existence in Japan, we had giant radiated monsters, 50-foot ants, destroying America. Mm -hmm. So this was a familiar idea. And look at how they made the X-Men. I, I think this... Now, we're looking here at the cover of X-Men number one, as it was reproduced for Marvel Masterworks. And this is the absolute first appearance of the, of the idea of the X-Men team itself of the five active team members who were in it for a very long time, the first appearance of their antagonist, Magneto. Ooh. I mean, the iconic enemy, sometimes turned ally. Mm -hmm. And then not featured on the cover is the sixth introduction of a character, Professor Xavier. Professor Charles Xavier. And the idea, basically, is that you have these two warring philosophies. Charles Xavier, who wants peaceful coexistence, and he represents essentially a Gandhi or Martin Luther King style approach. Mm -hmm. And then you have Magneto, who is gathering in Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. And the implications are very clear. They are more of a Malcolm X figure. They will demand their rights, mm -hmm. not ask for them. And <sighs> Stan Lee... I think kind of chicken shit it at times. He said the X-Men represented through wearing their masks the other, any other. And there's some truth to that. I mean, I know people that have seen, who have written and, and read correctly into it, later stories where the X-Men represented homosexuality, the Jewish people, many other others. I can right? see that. But those were under those writers. I would argue that in the original run of the X-Men, they represented racism. Yeah. Specifically racism against African Americans. And I think that was meant to be. Right. Which obviously. Is, they hammered it home pretty hard. Right. And I, I think that if you want to answer the question, well, why aren't there black people on the covers? And why wouldn't Stanley admit it's a metaphor for racism? The answer is because he wanted to sell his books in the South. Yeah, and you couldn't have black you couldn't people have on covers in the South. Right. 
They wouldn't even air a black and a white man kissing on TV. Well, nobody in the country would air two men kissing at that time. But a white man and a black woman, That's, they wouldn't Isn't air. that what I said? You said white man and black man. Oh, shit, sorry. <laughs> and you're right, they wouldn't air it. <laughs> <laughs> Either way, they wouldn't air it. <laughs> but clearly there's meant to be a, dis- a physical distinction here. Now, we laugh at it now, but there is some interesting symbolism. And we laugh at it now because the diversity of this team is represented... By four white guys and one white girl. Yeah, how diverse. With a white team leader and a white villain. But look at what they did. So the the redhead uh, is just kind of looks like a you know redhead girl. But they take Iceman, and in his early appearances, he looks like he's a snowman covered with snow. So he's completely dehumanized by mm-hmm. his powers. Mm-hmm. Although, unlike a figure like the Thing, he can let it go away. He's kind of an ice equivalent to Johnny Storm. Yeah. Then you have Cyclops, who must wear this visor, this sort of one-eyed visor, or his powers go out of control. So he's essentially, even though superpowered, disabled. Yeah. He needs this mechanical thing, and it sets him apart. Even in his normal human persona, he can't turn that power off. So he must wear these funky yellow red glasses that people will always see and go, oh, something's weird and off about him. Mm-hmm. Then you have the Beast, who is highly intellectual, but physically is essentially what white people used to spread as propaganda about black people, that they're animals. Uh-huh. And more suited to physical labor than trying to think. That's about as direct of a metaphor for racism as you can right. get. And put in the body of... And and get but given the mind in this body of a brilliant scientist, ah. and then you have Warren Worthington the third, the high flying angel, and you don't see it very evident here, but becomes emphasized very soon that he's intelligent, he's suave, he's rich, he's extremely handsome, he has beautiful angel wings and can fly, and it's this idea of this is a figure that ostensibly will be accepted by people Mm -hmm. because he's a mutant, but he's the right kind of mutant. Uh And this is an idea that's been explored other places. In fact, in George R.R. Martin's Wild Card series, uh, they explore it quite a bit with uh, their dichotomy between what they call aces and jokers. Aces are people who develop good, positive mental powers and or, or powers that uh, don't show in some way, like size changing or teleporting or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then jokers are people with physical mutations. And everybody accepts this teenage blonde girl who grew angel wings as an ace. And on a talk show, she confronts you know the crowd and the host about it and says, I'm a joker. I'm one of the people you put in slums. You just happen to like my mutation. Uh-huh. So... I mean, some, I mean, and that idea may very well have been taken from X-Men. Mm-hmm. So this was the X-Men for many years, and the metaphor against racism was pretty stark. Although over time, the X-Men have come to also represent um, anti-Semitism, mm-hmm. strongly too. And specifically, the figure of Magneto has become heavily intertwined with that. The relationships have changed over the years as we've gotten further and further from World War II 
but originally he was described as having had a daughter and wife in Auschwitz, and he was, you know, stamped as a prisoner. Later on, as we've gotten further from World War II and they wanted to keep it contemporary, they've made it so he was a child at Auschwitz. Oh, so he's canonly Jewish? Oh, yeah, very okay. much so. I did not know that. And he very much sees the oppression of the mutants as the same thing as the oppression of the Jews in World War II mm-hmm. and says, we have to strike back or else. Although he was not established as Jewish in the earliest stories. That came later. Yeah. But the, the early stories are definitely about racism and they're about visual appearance that people look at him and immediately go, oh, you're muties. Mm-hmm. And it's in stark contrast to, say, the Avengers, where they're well accepted. Mm-hmm. I mean, you didn't get a black guy into the Avengers until it was the 70s and it had to be an African king. Yeah. <laughs> Personally put there by Captain America. Because, you know, it has to hate Captain fucking America. Seems that way. I'm just saying, for being, for originally being born in a very racist time, he seems to be the least racist among them all. Well, he's Captain America. He represents the ideal Uh of people, right? Which, you know, I would hope ideally you aren't fucking racist. Right. (laughs) And Cap is not. Mm Mm-hmm. So, X-Men was not a huge title, and by 1975, they were looking to make it a quarterly. In fact, at one point, they hadn't even been publishing it for a little while. Mm-hmm. And Len Wein came along. Len Wein is responsible for so much of Marvel in the 70s, and it still stuns me that he's a name that you know superhero comic book fans don't seem to know better. But he came up with an idea to switch over to a quarterly format, publishing one issue about every four months. And he wanted to heavily diversify the X-Men. And up to this point, the X-Men were still, except for a couple of people that showed up every now and then, those five original members. Mm. So he came up with a storyline where the five original members are being held hostage by the big bad on an island. And Xavier needs to recruit a new group of X-Men to save them. Mm. And this is a actual facsimile of that original issue that Marvel's produced, even with the original ads. That is how iconic this issue is to the history, history of superhero comics, that they've even felt pressure to create a facsimile issue with the ads and everything. I love when I can see the old ads. I know, it is amazing, isn't it? And this is the stuff I grew up on. So if anyone needs bait. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Bait and fishing rods are covered in this ad for Nearest Discount Sales, Incorporated in Chicago, which probably doesn't exist anymore. I wonder if you can still get it for $14.97. Doubt it. I I think that pricing is gone. (laughs) But here we see these new characters being introduced as X-Men. They introduced Wolverine. This is the first appearance of, well, not the first appearance of Wolverine, but the first appearance of Wolverine with the X-Men. Mm. His previous appearance had been fighting the Hulk. Oh, I, I thought he was an X-Men original. Nope. Like, I thought he originally came from the comics. He was created for a fight against the Hulk. I did not know that. Yep. Hmm. And then we had Thunderbird, a Native American character. We had Colossus, Pieter Rasputin, 
a Russian farm boy who likes to paint, who can turn his body into giant solid metal, organic metal, and is canonically one of the most impervious and strongest characters in the Marvel Universe. I mean, up there with he can take blows from the Hulk category. Damn. Nightcrawler, Kurt Wagner, and then a Japanese superhero, Sunfire, an Irish one called Banshee, and then from Africa, Storm. So we've covered Native American territories, Canada, Central Africa, Russia, uh, Scotland, Japan, and Germany. And let's talk about some of these choices. Now, Wolverine was probably an easy choice. People already liked him from his brief appearance in Hulk. Mm -hmm. Storm was actually created because they got near the end of the creation process and realized they had no female characters and took a male one named Typhoon and turned him into Storm using a costume created for another character that never made its debut named Black. Because remember, the outfits have to be as sexualized as possible if they're women. Oy vey. It could have been a lot worse. Banshee, which became an ongoing character. Mm. But think of, for example, example um, Sunfire there. Mm-hmm. It, this was 1975. It had only been a generation ago that we were fighting the Japanese. Mm. And they're taking a character who is a bit of a nationalist jerk, but making him a central character. We were right in the middle of the Cold War with the Soviet Union. We have a Russian good guy. And not an aggressive Russian. A painter who's a nice guy. In fact, he's the nice guy of the team. That's where even now when Russian characters are included in shows, they're still kind of seen as the macho tough guys. Right. And, I mean, here's Pieter Rasputin, who's one of the toughest guys in the Marvel Universe, and he'd rather paint. And then you have Kurt Wagner, who grew up in a circus. He is literally the darkest of them. I mean, he makes Storm look pale. Mm -hmm. And he literally looks like a devil, including dark blue-black skin, yellow eyes, elfin ears, three fingers, two toes, and a prehensile tail with a little spike on the end, like a traditional devil's tail. Mm -hmm. And he's a light-hearted... Um, kind of, I'm trying to think of the word because he he combines several archetypes. He's a swashbuckler. He's practiced with the rapier and loves sword fighting. Mm. He's charming and loves flirting with ladies. Mm. He's nice and the one likely to crack jokes and try to make everybody feel better. Mm. And he looks like a demon. Mm-hmm. So there's a conscious attempt here to be multinational mm-hmm. and, again, say, much like they, much like uh, uh, Lee and Kirby did with the original X-Men, that appearances are not going to define these characters. Mm-hmm. Now, in this original outing, Thunderbird dies. Several others leave to not be regular members. And over... Time to come, more members come in and join. Mm-hmm. And in fact, one of the things the X-Men is known so well for now is its huge roster of constantly changing characters and titles. And, and I do want to mention also, I think I'd be wrong not to, 
is that while this is in the 1970s and clearly, you know, the next uh, decade over from the heart of the civil rights movement, but civil rights movement is still very much ongoing and important, when they introduce an African character, she's regal. Mm -hmm. She's not from some poor tribe. She's not ignorant. She's highly intelligent. She's believed to worshipped as a goddess. And she demands respect and becomes one of the main leaders of the X-Men. So there was a lot here that people saw in this generation of X-Men that spoke to them. Uh, Immigrants, um, African-Americans, and so on. So all of that brings us to God Loves, Man Kills. Now... Len Wein stepped away from X-Men because he got tired of editing and he decided he wanted to be a regular writer again. But he got his pick of four titles to do and he had at least five he wanted to do. So at least one had to go and he decided it'd be X-Men because they wanted to make X-Men a regular monthly title again. He couldn't do that with the others he wanted to do. So he gave it over to Chris Claremont, who became heavily associated with X-Men and with them for decades to come. He's cons- I, people still talk about Stan Lee and Jack Kirby endlessly when like the X-Men movies come out. And I'm like, where's the love for Chris Claremont, who did so much of this stuff? Mm-hmm. I mean, Stan Lee and Jack Kirby, who were amazing, formidable talents, had nothing to do with a lot of the characters that you see in these properties now. Mm-hmm. And indeed, many people have added on to them over the years. So, this is God Loves, Man Kills. This is a slightly extended edition with stuff people have tossed in, uh, mainly commentary and introductions and stuff like that. It was written in 1982, There are a lot of things in here that are very clearly about racism against African Americans, but I think it also speaks to, say, racism against Asian Americans that we've seen in the last few years. Mm -hmm. And obviously racism against uh, the black population is not something that we've had to stop dealing with because, as we've seen uh, with the rise of extreme right-wing factions, that um, things like Black Lives Matter movement have been necessary to bring a light and fresh discussion to these topics. Uh-huh. So as the story opens, we get this little place in the middle of nowhere, and this middle-aged woman with a purple dragon shows up. Mm-hmm. And her name is Kitty Pride. Now, this is not the Kitty Pride we know anymore. This is a framing story, where she's clearly in the future. Mm-hmm. And middle-aged. Now, Kitty Pride was not one of the X-Men reintroduced uh, by Lynn Wein, or introduced by Lynn Wein, I should say. But as Ariel, did join the X-Men fairly early in its modern run. And later gained the pet dragon Lockheed. Did not gain Lockheed, though, until a series called Excalibur later on. So these pages are part of the extended edition that they've added to kind of wrap around the main story. 
Lockheed is well beloved in the Marvel universe by people. Makes sense. Yep. I feel like most pet companions are. All right. And you see the artistic shift when we move from this wraparound story that's been added to the extended edition to the original. Oh yeah, you can see a huge like change in the art style too. Yeah, absolutely. Not just choices of colors, but in the penciling and everything else. From penciling to shading to colors, the white faces are even drawn. Right, and color setting. I mean, frankly, you can tell with the wrapping story that it was done in the age of digital color setting. Mm-hmm. Whereas the one on the right was done back in the day of doing it all by hand. Yeah. So, two black kids are out in a playground, middle of the night. They shouldn't be out there. And this paramilitary strike team hits and assassinates both of them. Aww. Why? Because they're muties. Because they're mutants. But the symbolism is pretty upfront. Oh, yeah, they hit they're, you in the head with it. I mean, they're black kids being killed by white paramilitary soldiers. And then they're hung up on the playground set to be found with the word muty scrawled on them. It doesn't take a lot to see this as a clear analogy for when African men were lynched Mm -hmm. and hung up on a makeshift gallows, which is exactly what this is. They may as well wrote across the page, metaphor for racism here. Right. And as part of why I said while... The X-Men have been metaphors for other kinds of thems over time. They were really conceived as a metaphor for African-American racism, and that was certainly still the case as of the publication of God Loves, Man Kills, which was 1982. I mean, now, it's not all about race. It's also about religion. Now, keep in mind, 1982 was the era of the rise of the televangelist, the rise of these movements that are now shaping national politics in the United States with their extreme evangelical conservatism. Mm -hmm. This was when that was starting. Mm -hmm. And they were basically saying, this is where it's going to lead, this kind of stuff. And they were right, because these evangelical groups have turned out to be a haven for fascist movements Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. Uh, And fascist movements seem to sooner or later, all get around to being concerned about the purity of the population. And we find out it's being led by this guy named Stryker, William Stryker. And he's, of course, a televangelist who runs the Stryker Crusade. And that strike team that killed the two young children were part of his paramilitary organization. Now, we go now into the story where we see a young Kitty Pride who's having a fight with a young man. It spills out of... uh, I'm not sure if it spills out of the bookstore or the deli next door. It looks like it's the deli store. I'm not sure. Anyway, she ends up in a fist fight with the guy, and they eventually get separated, and their sort of leader, who is not an X-Men, gets Peter, Peter, Peter Rasputin Colossus, to help break the fight up, but they're all in their human appearances. You know, he's not summoning their organic armor. She's not phasing through things. And it turns out the argument has to do with the young man was praising William Stryker and praising his war on mutant kind. 
Oh, God. Which pissed off Kitty Pride. Kitty Pride, by the way, is a canonical Jewish character mm. uh, in the stories. And you can see her wearing the Star of David there. Oh, I missed that. Yep. And they eventually break the fight up. And the black woman, who's kind of the uh, leader to the younger mutants, says, they're only words, child. And Kitty says, well, suppose he'd called me a nigger lover. Would you be so damn tolerant then? Now, in the original printing, the word nigger was left printed regularly. Here, in this edition, they've chosen to redact it, covering up everything but the end. So you get the same idea of what she said. It was a little chicken shit on Marvel's point, reprinting, though. Because, I mean, there is a valid point here. You know, this woman who is human, mm-hmm. and she's like, well, I know you're mutants, and I know he's espousing hate, but you can just ignore it, right? Mm-hmm. And, of course, Kitty, who has grown up in a post-World War II world where a family of hers were persecuted and murdered. Mm. You know, because people who have this attitude of, well, it's just words and strikers just riling people up. Words lead to action. Well, I, I mean, those are the sort of the things people said about Hitler uh-huh. before he gained the power to implement them. And then he did. And then gas chambers happened. Right. So... We've seen this pattern happen in the 20th century mm-hmm. with the Jewish people. And so here's this woman who's part of a persecuted minority herself, historically, blacks, mm-hmm. uh, and certainly still face, you know, equity struggles. Mm-hmm. And she's very dismissive of this hate speech. And Kitty points out, well, if it was, I mean, she does it in an explosive way by dropping the N-word, but she points out, if this was hate speech to the group you're a part of, would you feel so nonchalant about it? Which I think is completely fair to point out. And in fact, you we know, find that she thinks to herself on the next page after Kitty leaves, she was right. Mm-hmm. She acknowledges it. Because, you know, everyone's quick to say it's just words till it's their minority. And until it's personal to oh. your experience. Right. So we get more established about Stryker and what kind of, you know, person he is. We get a scene of the X-Men practicing in the danger room, none of which is really terribly important for the plot. But then we get an ambush where Scott uh, Summers, a.k.a. Cyclops, Storm, and Professor Xavier are all kidnapped Mm -hmm. after being ambushed, although it's made to look like they're dead. And we find out that Stryker is, in fact, kidnapping Xavier and trying to brainwash him to use him to mentally track down and kill mutants. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, the others are finding out that Stryker has the X-Men under observation and they're catching the people involved and Magneto shows up. And Magneto shows up as an ally here. Mm. Because... Magneto's fundamental goals are the safety of mutant kind. They just disagree on how to do it. And how violently to do it, and by what means are reasonable to accomplish it. But they still have the same end goal. At least in part. And there have been times Magneto has been a professor at Xavier's school. There are times he's led the X-Men. He has very much been an anti-hero 
sometimes much more on the hero side. And we really see a lot of that coming here with this. Depends on the writing, basically, is what right. you're saying. Now, on the next page, we see part of Xavier's brainwashing and what's happening inside his head. Mm-hmm. They are taking him up to the top of the Twin Towers, which, of course, still existed at this time. Oh. Ironically, of course, uh, 20 years later, the Twin Towers would be a site of a hate attack. So, and terrorist attack on the United States. So it kind of worked out in a fucked up way. And they take him up there and they refer to it as Golgotha and crucify Xavier. Mm-hmm. Now Golgotha is the hill upon which Christ was crucified. Mm. So the symbolism is pretty clear. They're strong with it here. Yeah. And strong with this religious theme that of God loves man kills, but all these people who say they're speaking for God are killing. Mm-hmm. And then we find out a background story from Stryker as he decides to do the villainous monologue with Storm and Cyclops. And we find out that he was in a car accident with his wife who was pregnant. The wife, from the stress, gave birth to the child and it was a mutant. So Stryker grabbed a knife, killed the just born infant, and then killed his wife. And then tried to kill himself, but lived. And then decided that God had ordained him to destroy the evil mutants. What in the mental issue shit? Oh, so many issues. So eventually we get to where Kitty Pride has been kidnapped by these paramilitary psychos. And she manages to barely escape. And this group of black thugs get involved who end up essentially being her savior. Mm. Another commentary on appearance versus everything else. Mm. Kitty makes some calls to try to get help. Fortunately, her phasing abilities allows her to escape okay. Magneto gets involved. And by the time all is said and done, they basically realize they need to track down and confront Stryker. Mm -hmm. After finding out that he's the source of these paramilitary groups going after them. And they do, at a giant rally. And this giant rally is like... I mean, how do you describe it? It looks like they're almost in like a football stadium. With uh, a bottom row with a bunch of people in a crowd, and then multiple people on bleachers, that's what they're called? Yeah. Three rows of bleachers. And it looks like a huge stadium. like a guy on a stage. Like, 100,000 people could fit in there. hmm And it sends the X-Men for a loop, including random people who are just standing around. Mm-hmm. Who obviously didn't know they were mutants. The conflict intensifies, as you would imagine it would. And we get Stryker's right-hand woman. The one that has been carrying out these assassinations. Killing children. And it turns out she's a mutant. And she didn't know it. And so the reverend pushes her off the stage, breaking her neck, killing her on national TV. Wow. Absolute fanaticism. Uh-huh. And part of what keeps things from going completely out of control are cops. Uh, Chris Claremont must have had a more positive impression of cops than some people in today's age do. But we see that the people protecting the mutants when they're down 
are New York City cops who are like, no, we don't lynch people. That is not how we do things in a civilized society. And the cops are protecting the mutants. You must have had a better view on cops. Well, I mean, he was a white guy living in New York in the in the 80s. Oh, well, yeah, those when you're under those situations, you tend to think well of the cops. <laughs> and Stryker points out at Kurt Wagner, the uh, nightcrawler, and says, you dare call that thing human? And Kitty says, more human than you. Stryker picks up a gun and goes to shoot Kitty. And it's a cop that shoots Stryker. Now, here he's presumably dead. This graphic novel, which was only like the fourth one Marvel ever published, uh, was so iconic that characters like Stryker, of course, got resurrected for other storylines later. And a recurring villain... And I think at one point he might have been president of the United States, certainly a U.S. senator. Sounds about right. Yeah. And there's a long discussion here between Magneto and Xavier at the end about how they have similar goals, but they cannot work the same way together. Mm -hmm. And then we wrap around back to this wraparound story where, you know, it's very sad. And so Kitty Pride and the girl are crying and... They says, well, what does it have to do with me? Well, you have to help make the future. And then you see these paramilitary robots come through, or there might be people inside suits, and they're looking for Kitty Pride because they're trying to hunt down and get rid of all the mutants. Oh, shit. So we see how there is still this long-term consequence to everything. Mm-hmm. And even if you have a big dramatic moment, that helps people realize that mutants uh, are people too. Mm-hmm. Like, let's say, Dr. Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. That doesn't automatically solve things. And it doesn't necessarily even change people. Mm-hmm. So, I'm not a big fan of the frame story here. In fact, I, I don't really understand why they added it. But the original story of God Loves, Man Kills has stood as a testament to comic book readers uh, about the nature of racism, even back when they didn't add that much diversity to the comics. Yeah. But it's an interesting, because the comics, especially Marvel, uh, up until the 80s, and DC became more mixed after that, but uh, until the 80s, DC stayed away from controversial topics, you know, Like the plague. Right. But we see that even in an age where they often had their hands tied about what they presented, I mean, they weren't going to publish a book with a bunch of black characters. There's only so much the writers and the artists can do when the higher-ups say they can only have pasty main characters. But they worked hard to use symbolism and metaphors through these characters to still tell relevant stories about things like the African-American experience, Mm -hmm. even if they weren't allowed to use, you know, African-American characters. Yeah. Because they had to use famous characters that had been around and would sell. And those were all white characters, basically. Yeah, and there's more now. I mean, the 70s did see the introduction of more dark-skinned characters. I mean, 
even though the Black Panther had been introduced in the 60s, we saw his run in Don McGregor's Jungle Comics really, or Jungle Action, really build the character up into what is now one of the great iconic Marvel characters. Also, we saw the introduction of Blade, the half-human, half-vampire who was introduced to go along with some of the horror comics they were doing in the 70s, like Werewolf by Night and the Tomb of Dracula. But he's really become a standalone character in his own right that's really important throughout the Marvel Universe, including the various Midnight Suns projects and a reboot of the movie franchise, which is coming up. Mm. with an actor whose name I can't remember, but he played Cottonmouth in the Luke Cage Netflix series and was really good. So high hopes for that. So that's it. I mean, what do you think? Mm -hmm. I, I don't really know what to say. I, it's still sad we have to have these conversations. It is. But keep in mind, a hundred years ago, people could go out and lynch a black man and nobody would go look for who did it. Mm -hmm. We've made progress. Not as much progress as we should, Mm -hmm. but at least we've made some. Mm -hmm. And hopefully we're still working towards more. I hope. And it's in some ways weird to talk about this in the context of African American history. It wasn't made by black writers or artists. It didn't explicitly mention the theme, but I know many black kids reading comics in the 80s who read this and went, there are people that understand. This is about us. Mm -hmm. And they understood it. Mm -hmm. So I still think it's worth talking about from that perspective. Most certainly. And I like that stuff like this still shows there are still conversations about it, even if they had to use white characters to tell the stories. Right. Because they were still trying even back then. Well, and it's hard to miss the obvious metaphor that there's been interaction with all these mutants, but what does he absolutely blow up about when one of them is dark skin? Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, the metaphor is clear. Yeah. All right, well, that's it for today. Class is no longer in session, and I'm at this point not even sure what order these things are going to post in. Who knows? But we'll be back soon. Mm -hmm. Okay, class is dismissed, but you are not. I have a quick info dump for you. If you want to listen to more of the podcast, we are available everywhere. We are on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, even on YouTube. Additionally, you can find me on social media, on Mastodon, Twitter, Tumblr, TikTok. I probably have a copy of the podcast on an iPod mini in a hobo's pocket in San Francisco. That's right, time travel. Do you want to know where you can find all these links? You can find them on my link tree. That is L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E forward slash Prof Hamby, P-R-O-F-H-A-M-B-Y. It is the comics course. And don't forget your homework.